Good afternoon and welcome. I'm Joy Bowman, Associate Dean in the College of Humanities and Fine Arts and Professor of History at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. I'd like to begin this event by acknowledging that our university community stands on Nanatuck land. And I'd also like to acknowledge our neighboring indigenous nations, the Nipmuc and the Wapanoag to the east, the Mohegan and the Pequot to the south, the Mohican to the west and the Abenaki to the north. It is my pleasure to welcome you to the 2021 James Baldwin Lecture, Young People Fighting for Climate Justice, a conversation with Ugandan climate activist, Vanessa Nakate, and UMass alumna and Sunrise Movement co-founder and executive director, Varshini Prukash. The James Baldwin Lecture addresses issues connected to social, economic, and political justice, as well as institutional racism. It was established and made possible with generous support from Dr. Alan J. Davis, a 1968 graduate of the UMass Amherst History Department. Named in honor of the inimitable writer, thinker, activist, and former five college member, uh, faculty member, James Baldwin, this lecture is presented by the Department of History, the W.E.B. Du Bois Department of Afro-American Studies and the College of Humanities and Fine Arts. This afternoon's event is also part of the 2021 Feinberg Family Distinguished Lecture Series. The Feinberg Series is offered every other year by the Department of History at UMass Amherst, thanks to the generosity of alumnus Kenneth Feinberg and Associates. Each iteration of the series focuses on a quote unquote big issue, a topic of clear and compelling concern to society. The series features a wide variety of events, including lectures, exhibitions, performances, panel discussions, and films that invite audiences to consider historical context, analysis, and experience to better understand the topic at hand. This year's Fem Feinberg Family Distinguished Lecture Series is entitled Planet, Planet on, a, on a Precipice, Histories and Futures of the Environmental Emergency. It seeks to deepen our understanding of the environmental emergency through historical analysis, and in so doing, help us to envision constructive paths forward. For more information about both of these initiatives, to register for future events or to view audio or video from last fall's events, please visit the Feinberg Series website. Also on the website, you can find a live simultaneous broadcast of this event in Spanish. While you're there, we invite you to also take a look at the list of more than three dozen community and university groups that partnered to make this event possible. Today's event also marks the launch of Dreaming the Future, a zine or online magazine by and for young people interested in these issues. Um, it is presented by the Feinberg series, the Forbes, the Jones, and the Lilly Libraries, as well as the Valley Zine Club. You can find this collection of poetry, art, speculative fiction, and climate justice action plans by local youth on the Feinberg website, where it will be updated on a rolling basis. At this point, I was scheduled to introduce 
Professor Toussaint Lozier, who was going to introduce our two speakers. As many of you who are watching this probably know, we are in the middle of a climate moment in the form of a nor'easter. And so Professor Lozier has been delayed a little bit, but will be joining us uh, for before the Q&A uh, session. But I will say a few words about him in anticipation of his arrival. Uh, Professor Lozier is a faculty member in the Du Bois Department of Afro-American Studies and a distinguished scholar of Black history and politics, as well as US and transnational grassroots social movements. He has been a visiting scholar at Harvard University's Charles Warren Center for Studies in American History and a Woodrow Wilson National Foundation Career Enhancement Fellow. He is the co-author of Rethinking the American Prison Movement, and is preparing a book manuscript tentatively entitled War for the City, Black Liberation and the Consolidation of the Carceral State. So we look forward to hearing from Professor Lozier uh, and our speakers uh, during the Q&A. But in the meantime, I will turn um, this platform over to our first uh, guest, Vanessa Nakate uh, from Uganda. So welcome. Thank you very much. Hi, everyone. My name is Vanessa Nakate, and I'm a climate activist from Uganda. I'm happy to be speaking with all of you today. In the year 2018, I remember I wanted to do something that would cause change in the lives of the people in my community and in my country, Uganda. So I started to carry out research to understand the major problems that were affecting the people in my country. I was surprised to find that climate change was one of the greatest threats that was facing their lives. I have been in school and I didn't realize that the climate crisis was such a big threat because in school, it isn't told as a reality that is happening right now, a reality that is affecting people's lives right now. So when I realized that communities in my country were suffering with devastating impacts of climate change, I decided to join the Fridays for Future climate movement, and I decided to start striking every Friday for the planet. I started my very first strike in the first week of January 2019, and I guess it's been over two years now, striking for the climate. Of course, saving the planet is not a very easy journey. There are very many challenges that a person faces, from trolls on the internet, to not getting support from friends, to not feeling like anyone is listening to you. As a young person from the global south, one of the, great, the greatest challenges I faced in the climate movement in my activism has been the feeling of being left out, the feeling of being cropped out. After I attended a press conference in Davos, that was last year in January, and I happened to be cropped out of a photo with fellow climate activists from Europe. It was a very disturbing moment for me, but then it was also a moment for me to see a bigger picture 
of what the climate crisis really is, of how people from my community are continuously being affected, of how specific groups of people are most vulnerable to the climate crisis. And yet very few people are listening to the challenges that they are facing. We all understand that there is no climate justice without social justice, and there is no climate justice without racial justice. Erasing a photo of a climate activist from the global south means erasing the voices, the cries of all the victims who are being affected by the climate crisis right now. Africa as a continent is one of the least emitters of CO2 emissions, but we clearly see that it is among the most affected by the climate crisis. We have seen terrible impacts of climate change in different parts of the African continent. The southern countries in Africa are facing massive droughts that are leading to water scarcity and leaving people's crops dried up. Where I come from, I have seen changes in weather patterns. I have seen rise in water levels of Lake Victoria that has left farms destroyed, that has left water contaminated, that has exposed children to diseases like cholera, diarrhea. I have seen droughts in the northern part of the country, landslides, name it. What disaster haven't I seen in my country or in the African continent? We have also seen um, lakes like Lake Chad, its water levels shrinking to a tenth of its original size in just 50 years. The climate crisis is happening right now in the African continent. However, we are the least responsible for what is happening right now. We are at the front line of climate change, but we are not on the front page. Few people are listening to us. Few people care to amplify what is happening in our countries. And it's not just the people from Africa. The people generally from the global south are facing devastating impacts of climate change. We have seen floods that have swept over India during this period of the pandemic. We have seen indigenous communities being abused, indigenous communities being disrespected, and their land being grabbed, and their land being destroyed for the extraction of oil. We have seen oceans being, being polluted because of the pollution, because of the oil, because of the spills. But who is facing all these challenges? It is communities of people of color. Even when we go to the United States, we clearly see that communities of people of color, they are at the front line of climate and environmental disasters. I cannot say this and forget about the water crisis in Flint. We have seen the Flint water crisis where people, children were exposed to poisoned water. What is this? This is environmental injustice. To me, climate justice involves people, the planet and the ecosystem. We cannot run to save the planet without remembering the people who are suffering right now. And if we are to see change, then the change has to include everyone.
If we are to see change, then we have to make sure that no specific communities are placed in areas with coal power plants, areas filled with air pollution. As you know that the UK uh, made one, the first case, death case that was related to air pollution of a young girl named Ella, which is very sad. Change can only occur when there is justice for all of us. People need to understand that a future that is intersectional is a future that we need. Climate change affects every sector of our lives. I always say that we cannot achieve any sustainable development goal without addressing the issue of climate change. How will you eradicate poverty in countries like mine when climate change is pushing millions of people into extreme poverty? How will you achieve zero hunger across the world when millions of people are being left in dire need of food because their farms are being destroyed, their farms are being washed away by heavy rainfall, their crops are drying up because of the droughts, their crops are being eaten up by locusts. We all possibly know about the locust invasion in East Africa, whereby the locusts ate almost everything that they came across in people's farms leaving people with a problem of food scarcity. But who came to our rescue? We won't even be able to achieve equality, gender equality without addressing climate change. It's important for me to say that girls and women are disproportionately affected by climate change in countries like mine. Society has given women and girls roles, roles of getting food, collecting water, and providing for their families. But in the case of climate disasters, girls and women have to walk long distances to collect water in the case of scarcity. They have to work triple in their farms to provide food for their families. Some of the children have to drop out of school, and that is the girls, to help their mothers in providing for their families. Some girls are forced into marriages when their families have lost everything to the climate crisis because they expect a bride price and they know that they are reducing on the number of children at home. What happens to these girls when they are forced into marriages? They are exposed to diseases like HIV, stroke AIDS. They are exposed to diseases like fistula because they are young. They are exposed to unwanted pregnancies. They are exposed to anxiety, depression. Some of them are exposed to suicidal moments. We have to put an end to this. We can't have any more child brides. We can't have any more girls dropping out of school. That's why it's important that we educate more girls for the planet. We need one voice, one platform, and one action to change this world. It all starts with that one person. But then imagine all these voices, all these platforms, all these actions, put together, we will be able to transform this world. We will be able to change this world. We will be able to see a better place for everyone. 
The vision of a just future for me is simply a happy people and a happy planet. To me, that is a just future. Because if a person is happy, that means their rights are being respected. That means they have access to the necessities of life. They can have access to food, access to water, access to shelter, access to medical facilities. They have the feeling of protection and that they can live happily and sustainably for their families. And if the planet is happy, it means our ecosystems are happy. It means the animals are happy. It means everything is happy. To me, that is a just future, simply a happy people and a happy planet. And with vision, we will know exactly what we want to achieve. This is me right now challenging you to imagine the kind of future you want. What future do you envision? What are you fighting for? What do you want to see in this world? When you have that vision, it will help you fight harder. It will give you the hope to keep speaking up regardless of what happens. To be persistent and consistent in what you're demanding for. Because if you imagine it, then you are able to achieve it. Let us walk together. Let us walk towards a future that is happy, a future that is healthy, a future that is sustainable, a future that is equitable for all of us. And if we want to achieve this, then we have to build people, we have to build communities, we have to build our countries. But this is only possible if the people are happy and the planet is happy. That is what I call climate justice. Climate justice is only justice if it is global enough and if it includes everyone. That is part of the bigger picture. Thank you very much. Hi everyone, wow, I, that was incredible. Vanessa, I am so deeply inspired by you. I am so grateful for your leadership. I've been following your work for a number of years now and just feel really blessed to be able to share this, this virtual space with you. Um, and I wish I could hear the applause that I'm sure people are giving you, uh, but sadly we are not all together. Um, but good afternoon, everyone. My name is Varshini Prakash. I am the executive director for an organization called Sunrise. Um, and we organize young people all across the country um, towards uh, building a world where exactly that vision that Vanessa just communicated, a world where people can breathe clean air and, and drink fresh water and live in safety and dignity and belonging. Um, and so I am just really humbled to be here. I'm so happy to be back with my UMass community. I've missed y'all. It's been a few years since I've been around, but I, it is a place that nurtured and allowed me to grow beyond anything that I ever dreamed of for myself. And so it will always, always be home. Um, and I wanted to start just by telling you a little bit about my story and how I came um, to be where I am today. And for me, um, that really starts with, with my home, with where I'm from. 
Um, my family, I was born and raised in, in, in Massachusetts. I'm, I'm living in Boston right now, which is um, uh, the original lands of the Pawtucket and, and Massachusetts people where, I, where I'm living in Boston. Um, but my family comes from, from India and particularly Southern India. And it's a place that I had the privilege to visit every few years when I was growing up. And, and it is a place that is, is in my blood and it is my home no matter where I live. Um, and I love it so dearly. I remember just the, the visiting my grandma's house when I was a kid and, and these, um, uh, hearing all these stories from my dad about eating mangoes on the terrace of their little one room home on the beach. And uh, my dad playing with all these like skinny little Indian kids and his dog Goofy and 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 all of the the my my grandma cooking me just the most delicious foods and it was just a place that that I loved so dearly. Um, and when I was in fifth or sixth grade, I remember as many maybe many of you might as well um, this really horrific tsunami hitting uh, the coast of India um, and. Uh, all across that region. And I remember, you know, watching on my TV screen here in the United States, these hundred foot waves just coming in droves, crashing onto the shores, literally wiping away the face of the earth. And I really didn't like news or politics at that time, but I remember just being glued to my TV screen, um, watching, like rushing home from school, turning on CNN and seeing this death toll rising, like 50,000, 100,000. 200,000 and just feeling the anguish in my body of this, these stories of these kids who saw the water receding and went to go grab shells or whatever they could find. And then seeing this wall of water emerging and, and, and the amount of just carnage that emerged as a result of that. And it haunted me at night. And I remember being desperate to do anything, like anything to alleviate the pain that I was feeling. I was, you know, 11 or 12 years old. I didn't really know what my options were. And so my school had this Red Cross donation box in my class where they were gathering supplies to donate. And I just gathered everything that I possibly could, like just cans and asking my mom whatever we had and, and dumping them into this box and, and looking down and realizing like, what the hell was this gonna do for the hundreds of thousands of people who were in pain? Like, this is not enough. I am not powerful. I can't save anyone. And that moment just stuck with me of, of feeling like the, the scope of the crisis at hand um, and, and my power to do something about it in that moment, just not adding up. And I think in that moment, I did what we all do when we feel powerless, just tuck away, ignore, pretend it isn't happening and, and move on. But it, you know, it wasn't long until these stories found me again or stories that sounded really similar to it. Like in middle and high school, learning about um, seeing the way that Hurricane Katrina had killed 3000 people in New Orleans and the vast majority of those people being black, being poor, being the elderly, um, hearing about the, the pipelines, the toxic waste sites that went through indigenous territory and tribal lands. Um, seeing the way that that floods emerging floods in in kerala where my family was from in india where a million people had to be evacuated last summer um and seeing the way in which kids in delhi had asthma rates that were just skyrocketing um just seeing these these horrific images and 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 realizing like something was fundamentally wrong and learning about climate change and and 
the the sort of level of economic inequity in the world that has led to the cause of the of the climate crisis and that the suffering that was caused by people were often people who lived where I lived in the world and who made a lot of money off the backs of people who bore the brunt of their greed. Um, and so I think there was this moment, I remember when I was in, in high school of, of realizing there's a lot of suffering that happens in the world that you can't stop, um, that I couldn't stop. I couldn't stop that tsunami. I couldn't do anything when I was 10 years old, but then there is a lot that you can. Um, and just believing that, that as, in my life that I have a moral duty and this responsibility to do everything in my power, everything in our power to build a just and equitable society for as many people as we can. Um, and so I made a choice in that moment that that powerlessness and the sense of feeling small and the sense of what can I do, that wasn't gonna hold me back any longer. And um, I, came to UMass Amherst when I was 18. Um, and I, that was the place where I first fell in love with and was introduced to movements. Um, I, talk, I took this amazing class called Grassroots Community Organizing, which I don't know if it's still available, but y'all should definitely take that. Um, I started working on a, a sustainable food program at UMass to, to figure out how we can actually sustainably grow food and eradicate food deserts where poor folks and people of color don't have access to good, healthy food. Um, and eventually I sort of tripped and fell into this campaign for fossil fuel divestment, which was calling on UMass Amherst um, to stop investing in the corporations, the fossil fuel industries, the oil and gas and coal companies that were making money, that were making money off of pushing us ever closer um, to climate chaos and breakdown that would ultimately lead to the deaths um, and, and, and ruining just hundreds of millions of people's lives around the world. Um, and it was the first time in my life that I actually felt not alone. I felt like I was a part of a, a movement of people um, that was, you know, not just me sitting at home, like running after my mom, trying to switch the light bulbs off or whatever it was that I was doing but joining with other people to ultimately disrupt power structures that exist, ultimately pushing for systemic change, not change um, of like individuals making consumer choices, but actually change that would shift um, the entire system uh, that existed at that time to uphold a fossil fuel economy. So right there on UMass's campus, we got like over 5,000 young people to sign a petition calling for divestment. We did tons of marches and rallies. Uh, we had negotiating ne negotiations and meetings with school administrators, some of whom were sympathetic, but also some of whom who I remember this one guy um, looked me in my face after we shared similar stories to what I've shared here today and said, well, all I care about is making money. And so I think that it was this big lesson in learning, like as students, we could not, as young people, we could not rely on those with power to make the changes that we needed out of the sheer goodness of their hearts. Um, it was gonna be up to us, up to ordinary kids organizing um, and turning individual, our individual strength into collective power and standing up to make it happen. And so after years of agitating and organizing, 
Um, we actually led over a thousand young people in a week long sit-in at UMass. And I remember every single day we would be waking up at 5 a.m. or 6 a.m., coming to Whitmore Administration Building. And every day, the, the lines of people who were there at that sit-in were growing. At first, it was just 20 of us. The next day, it was 40. The day after that, it was 150. The day after that, it was 250 people. And it kept growing over the course of that week. And over 34 people risked and were actually arrested, um, pushing the administration to change their investment policies. And the last time that had happened um, uh, it, in U at UMass was uh, protests uh, surrounding the um, end of so the South African apartheid regime in, um, at, at UMass. And so, you know, this, this moment of realizing like, wow, there are so many people who are ready to throw down. And just one month later, um, the, UMass, the UMass Board of Trustees voted to make UMass the first major um, public university to divest from fossil fuels. And so it was this just huge realization, like we have power. We have power if we get organized, if we are unapologetic in our vision and in our demands. We have power as young people um, if we can unify across difference, it was really cool to see folks um, uh, across the spectrum of, of organizations at UMass coming together around uh, this 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 moment of disruption um, on our campus. And I think it, it it solidified in my brain something that I knew for so long um, and, and knew deep down in my heart that we are infinitely powerful um, if we can come together to make it happen. And so, you know, around this time, um, this was just at the tail end of the Obama years and realizing we have won so much, um, not just at UMass, but around the country. There were trillions of dollars that were divesting from fossil fuels in the US and, and globally. Um, and that there was this growing grassroots movement that was standing up against the Keystone XL pipeline led by indigenous folks and, and our rural communities. Um, we witnessed this indigenous global resistance that was emerging um, as, a, as a result of, of the fight against the Dakota Access Pipeline um, for climate justice. We saw the Paris Agreement being signed. Um, we saw some of the first steps towards federal climate policy, but then at the same time, it was abundantly clear um, we still were not enough, that we didn't have the scale, that we didn't have the power that our movements weren't growing um, at the speed and urgency of the crisis at hand. And in order to stop the greatest existential threat of our lifetimes, in order to prevent entire island nations and cultures and traditions from going underwater. Um, and realizing like we need that, that there were millions of people like us in the United States who didn't actually feel like they had a political vehicle to vocalize their fear and their frustration and begin the fight for a better world. Um, and I think it was this moment of reckoning of, of, you know, right now we are the first generation to feel the deep brunt of the climate crisis. Um, and we will be the last that has the chance to do some, something significant to limit the carnage that could emerge. Um, and so a number of us began actually dreaming up what would it look like to have a new movement for young people around climate justice? 
that wasn't just about carbon in the atmosphere or parts per million, but was rooted in addressing racial and economic justice as essential to the path to getting to climate justice. Um, a movement that understood that we had to both engage with politics um, and that we need our government to actually reflect our values and vision. We couldn't just keep fighting from the outside. Um, a movement that was uh, willing to go to scale and welcome people from all different backgrounds to be included in this movement, not just speaking to a small echo chamber. Um, and so, and, and a movement that was unabashedly calling for what we needed, not just what, that was saying yes to what we needed, not just no to what we didn't. Um, that wasn't just saying no to the pipelines and the fossil fuels and, and, and the pollution and all of that, but was also saying yes um, to, to, to reparations and redressing harm that has been done to tribal nations and black communities and poor communities um, and Latinx communities around this country. That was saying yes to guaranteeing that the right to clean air and clean water and an affordable and clean home um, was, 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 were inalienable rights for Americans and people all around the world. Um, that was declaring a solidarity knowing that the climate has no borders with communities um, all across the world. And so that, would, that was saying that, you know, we can create economic prosperity for people as we're addressing the climate crisis, that we will not leave workers behind, but they will be part of this new economy that we are building. Um, and that we need to fight for that vision through something like a Green New Deal, which you may have heard about. And so we launched Sunrise uh, in the spring of 2017 with that vision. Um, to make climate action that is rooted in racial and economic justice a, a priority in every corner of this country. And that that would be one of the best ways that we could actually stand in solidarity with communities across the world and the global south was by coming correct um, in our homes. And so, yeah, that's kind of just where the story starts. And, and over the last three years, I'm just so inspired to say that the, the, the movement has, has exploded. We have um, brought tens of thousands of, of, of youth who have been activated and are organizing their communities, um, hundreds of, of chapters across the country. And we've been thrown down with our um, uh, friends in, in the strike movement as well before, well, before the pandemic hit. Um, we've been able to elect climate champions to office who are also huge racial and economic justice advocates like Cori Bush um, or Jamal Bowman or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or Ed Markey and so many others. Um, and and I think, you know, everything that we have seen, the successes that Biden and others have, that we have declared as victories over the last week, they weren't just because the same story of, of you know, that administrator in that divestment negotiation, it didn't happen because uh, people woke up one day and decided that that was the right thing to do. It was because young people made a vision of the world for climate justice and moved it from, um, a political impossibility to becoming politically inevitable because we gave our power holders no other choice. And that is just what I hope um, you take from, from this conversation, if anything, is we need you in this fight. We need you to get activated. We need you to throw down. Um, we need this movement to not just be thousands, but millions of people strong um, because we are seeing rising hate we are seeing rising white nationalist and white supremacist violence. We are seeing a worsening climate crisis. We are seeing gun violence. 
we were seeing so many of the is issues that community that that communities have been dealing with not just for the last four years of Trump but for the last 400 um and in order to meet that rising tide of violence and hate the only thing that can is a rising tide of uh of of nonviolent um loving people who are ready to not just sit on the sidelines um, and avoid the issues at hand, but jump in um, and help forge a better world in the process. So thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to, for the rest of the discussion and appreciate you for listening in. Wonderful, wonderful. Um, I think this is the, uh, hopefully um, you hear the sound of applause from folks who are watching, um, even though we're not able to be uh, in studio or um, in person together. Um, uh, my name is Tutan I'm an assistant professor at the um, WB Du Bois Department of Afro-American Studies. So shout out again from uh, UMass. Um, yeah, I just really appreciate uh, uh, Varshney and Vanessa, your comments. Um, and really the time that you took to talk about your, um, your own journeys in terms of coming to do this work and doing so in a way that gave us a sense um, of your vision and also uh, the way in which you see uh, climate justice connected to uh, questions of gender justice, um, racial justice um, that deal with the rights of indigenous people. Um, that are linked very strongly to the circumstances of people in the global south um, and really uh, kind of um, in much of the same way in which you sort of spoke to it, Vanessa, a way of thinking about climate justice um, that is uh, deeply intersectional. Um, so I wanted to um, do a couple things. Um, we're going to have a chance for uh, Q&A in a bit of time, but really want to give us a chance to um, one, uh, notify folks about um, the process for Q&A. So there's a form um, that you can access via the link on the screen um, and in the comments. And that link will take you to um, a document where you can uh, insert the comment and then we'll, um, uh, we'll do our best to uh, pose as many of those as we can. Um, and while folks are taking the time to, um, to share their thoughts, share their questions, um, one of the things I was very curious about was um, you all really touched on a lot of ways in which you all came to uh, the work that you do in um, contending with, as you said, this kind of existential threat of um, uh, climate justice. Um, and I was most curious, um, and I wanted to kind of give you all a little bit of space to talk in terms of, um, perhaps it's obvious, right? Perhaps it's really self-evident. But um, if you could just speak a little bit about uh, the importance of focusing on uh, mobilizing young people around this issue, um, because uh, this is one of those um, questions where, in some sense, uh, climate justice directly uh, impacts um, the future that young people are going um, to see, a world that they're going to inherit. Um, but, um, there are many ways in which sometimes organizing young people or trying to mobilize young people is um, is seen as this is something that is you know an important part of say their individual development or uh, you know uh, a way in which uh, a certain 
uh, contend with young folks to be prepared for the future. And um, it sounds as if the focus of the organizing that both of you all do sees young people as crucial political actors and as folks who uh, much more so than those uh, who have come in earlier generations um, are at a point in their lives when they can make crucial change. And I just wanted to know if you could just take a moment to elaborate on um, why the process of organizing, mobil organizing and mobilizing young people around this issue in particular is so crucial. Um, and maybe Vanessa, if, if you could go first and just speak a little bit about maybe from your own experience, why have you found it so important to, um, to tap um, the capacities of young people? Um, uh, and how is uh, that an important part of maybe helping to get us to the vision we have for um, uh, a happier and healthier uh, human population and world? Um, thank you very much. First of all, I think that young people are not afraid to speak truth to power. They do not sugarcoat um, what they speak. If there is a challenge, they'll speak it the way it is. If a leader is messing up the planet, young people will say it the way it is. They won't try and sugarcoat it and you know try and protect probably the image and the social reputation of the leader. They'll say, you are destroying our planet and you have to do this and that to save it. And also I think young people, they really, they're necessary in participating in the saving of our planet because it is the it is our future that is at stake. It is the young people who are going to inherit a planet that is either uh, destructive, destroyed, sorry, or a planet that is safe. It is clear that the past was already messed up. Uh, it is also evident that the present is catastrophic. So I think that now is the time for young people to take charge, to try and save what has already been, I would say, predicted for the future. We have seen um, probably the older generation, if they were doing much, or if they were speaking truth to power, then we wouldn't be striking for climate or we wouldn't be organizing um, and putting the right leaders into power like what Fashni is doing. So it's time for the young people to put the right people in place, to put the right changes in place. If the adults are not able to be the adults in the room, then young people have taken up that role to try and clean up the mess. Awesome. Yeah, that was that was perfect. I don't have much to add on that point. I think, I mean, I just, young people have just been a part, a critical, critical part of virtually every major social movement that has existed in like, at least, I mean, US history, I'm sure global history too. And it, you know, it, I think we deeply need an intergenerational movement. I, I don't think that this will get done just because of young people. Um, but I think what young people bring to the table, the passion, the willingness to take risks, the willingness to, um, the, the, the lack of jadedness, the lack of cynicism, the real hope, the militant optimism, like that comes 
from young people. There's something about being young that just lends itself to that. Um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of, 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 of Diane Nash and Don, John Lewis and so many of these other leaders who did the Nashville lunch counter sit-ins, um, who, you know, were willing to face being brutalized um, in order to, to desegregate the South. Like, I'm thinking about um, friends that I have in the immigration justice movement who, um, you know, bravely crossed the border in order to showcase um, the, the the challenges that exist for undocumented people in this country. Um, I'm thinking of the young uh, folks who are a part of um, uh, the the uh, part of the Standing Rock. Um, um, uh, um, who are part of Standing Rock? Who are some of the first people who actually began? Process of, of standing up um, to the pipeline construction, to the Dakota Access Pipeline. Um, and, you know, it is always young people who are at the forefront of these movements, like the uprisings that took place um, around racial justice last summer. Um, a lot of those folks in, in Minneapolis were young organizers who had been fighting uh, for affordable housing or against white supremacy for uh, a while in their own communities and um, were able to organize and get into formation really quickly. No, definitely. I mean, um, I appreciate you all's comments and as a um, as a historian, you know, and as, as someone who's, um, been involved in environmental justice organizing, um, uh, human rights organizing. Uh, it's it's a you all are making really important points, both in terms of thinking about uh, the current kind of perspective and worldview of young people, and also really this historical role the young folks have played um, again and again um, uh, regarding um, different social movements and really really the, the brave um, uh, kind of efforts that folks have taken, um, whether it's the civil rights movement, whether it's um, uh, prior to that, um, we're talking about, you know, uh, the role of young people um, in uh, labor organizing, um, even more recently uh, with kind of earlier waves of environmental organizing and environmental justice. Um, young people have played a crucial role and, the the way in which you all have approached this has been um, uh, particularly inspiring. Um, Want to again just lift up the Q and A uh, link that's in the comments. Um, uh, we really want to hear what uh, folks who are watching us um, uh, might um, uh, be curious about or be interested in. Um, uh, one of the limitations of not being able to be face-to-face -face is um, being able to um, hear and really feel kind of where folks are coming from. So we're gonna try to uh, get that as much as possible. Uh, I wanted to ask one other, um, one other question just from your own perspectives, um, uh, as young women in particular, uh, have you seen um, questions of uh, gender really um, impacting the way in which we think about uh, questions of climate justice. And I've, uh, in many ways, um, it's uh, an issue that is not uh, addressed as directly when it comes to the question of climate change and uh, the impacts that climate change has, not just on the general, on, on the planet in general, but particularly on uh, what we call frontline communities. So those that are really at the forefront of um, 
the sort of changes that are taking place in the climate as um, um, as uh, our current um, form of pollution and um, really devastation of the planet uh, continues apace. And um, maybe Varshney, if you start us off, if you could just take a, talk a little bit about what it's meant to be a young woman in this movement. Um, and uh, if there are any particular ways in which you've seen um, the uh, questions of gender, uh, questions of um, uh, patriarchy impacting the way either the movement itself operates or more broadly, the way in which climate change uh, impacts folks on a day-to-day -day basis. This is great. I love this question. Um, I mean, I will say like, if you go to any social movement, organization, whatever it is, the vast majority of the time, particularly I've seen this in the climate movement, like women are running this, okay? Like women, queer folks are running this. Um, and I've seen that in my own organization where the vast majority of, of, of the rank and file people who are showing up, um, who are throwing down in, in local chapters or who are, um, a part of the leadership structure, the vast majority of the people putting in the work tend to be women. Um, and yet the, the you know, frequently the people who we see uplifted or, um, and I think this is changing just because of, of folks like Vanessa and folks like Greta and, 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 and many other leaders who are emerging um, and, and kind of combating this narrative of, of the people who getting, who are getting most of the, the attention and the, um, uh, focus being mostly primarily male identifying folks. I think the way it's affected me the most is, is, you know, becoming the executive director of this organization, um, even having like the audacity to believe that we could create something new and, and put out something different and, um, and, uh, you know, inject this vision of the future out into the world and build an organization around it. It has led me to just have to confront face to face so much of, of my own like imposter syndrome of believing that I'm not smart enough or I'm not powerful enough. Like other people know more than me, um, that I don't deserve to take up space or, or, um, that my opinion and, and doesn't matter or shouldn't be heard. And I think this is something that as you get more and more powerful and engage with, um, the, the power structures that exist, whether it's in politics, whether it's in the media, um, whether, you know, whatever it might be um, within your own organization, it gets a lot more white, it gets a lot more male very, very quickly in having to sort of work on your own sense of dignity and belonging in rooms like that is, has been sort of like a, a, a lesson and a, a, a journey in leadership than something that I ever imagined before. Um, and so I think a lot of, of, of where I'm at with it is, is we have to really be willing, um, we need to deeply nurture and support and develop the leadership of particularly women, queer folks, um, and, and people of color. Like we need to be willing to um, actually invest in, in their development and support them um, in their um, in their growth so that they can actually assume these positions of leadership and not just be tokenized in those positions, but can be supported to thrive. Um, and so that's like a big thing that we're thinking about in Sunrise is how do we actually support leadership transitions? How do we um, invest in folks uh, in a deep way that actually allows them to thrive in leadership positions, not just um, 
you know, get into them and then burn out or, or leave or whatever. And I think that's got to be a pr big priority for our movements across the board. Ooh, thank you very much for that. Um, Vanessa, any thoughts in terms of um, the, uh, the way in which uh, you see um, gender and particularly the roles of young women um, impacting the organizing that you're doing around um, climate justice? I know you spoke about it earlier in terms of um, uh, forced marriages and uh, really the, um, the sort of unwaged uh, domestic labor that young women do. Um, and uh, in many ways, the way in which um, uh, that work can take them out of, out of school at an early age. Um, and if there are any ways in which you see addressing that um, linked to the organizing, uh, the activism that you're already doing around questions of climate justice. Uh, thank you very much. I think speaking from my very first, um, one of my experiences as a young woman in the climate movement, of course, it hasn't really been a bed of beautiful roses. It has been quite challenge, uh, challenging. Um, you find that when I would post maybe a photo of my strike or on the streets or in front of a government building or the parliament, sometimes um, I would get really, really very nasty comments, you know, someone saying that um, if you if you are looking for a man and you're disguising as an activist, then why don't you, you know, just become a prostitute or something of that sort? Or why are you wasting your time? Why don't you just go back to school? Or why don't you just get married? So it's really been quite a terrible experience as a young woman in the climate movement um, because people always find ways to, um, I would say, sexualize everything and really attack young women. And also the, inc the incident of Davos where I was cropped up that still really brought me in the spotlight and does quite that was positivity uh, from people who are very supportive and also negativity from people who are out there to say, uh, you're too black, that's why you are cropped out or your hair was looking this way or you're ugly, that's why um, you were cropped out. So it has been quite challenging as a young woman and I've also realized that uh, it's not just challenging in the spaces of activism, but also for young women out in the communities in different parts of the world who are disproportionately affected by climate change, who face challenges of dropping out of school, being forced into marriages, uh, unwanted pregnancies, diseases, and all that. And the feeling of not being empowered and having to, you know, having to shoot, to be forced to live a life that they don't want to live. And I think one of the ways that we can change uh, this is by educating girls and also empowering women, because I believe that 
they are tomorrow's leaders, they are tomorrow's campaigners, they are tomorrow's scientists, and they will be able to you know, speak up in spaces like this. They'll be able to stand strong and resilient even when things like this happen. So I think uh, in order to reduce or put an end to the challenges that women and girls face uh, in the case of an occurrence of a climate disaster, then we need more women in decision-making rooms. We need more women in um, in rooms where where decisions about our planet, about our lives are being made because this in a way will help them to build more resilient communities since they'll be part of their decision-making. This will help them be empowered, not just as individuals who have had an an opportunity to go to school, but also um, benefiting their families, benefiting their communities and the world at large. So I think that environmental circles need to start embracing uh, one of the social solutions to the climate crisis, and that is educating girls and empowering women because Project Drawdown uh, lists it as the fifth most powerful solution for reducing CO2 emissions in the atmosphere. Wonderful. Um, yeah, I just wanna, wanna share um, you know, our solidarity and support. I mean, it's uh, what you're describing are really difficult circumstances and, um, uh, unfortunately, we continue to find that that sort of harassment and that sort of um, abuse um, really uh, uh, can target uh, activists in particular, organizers in particular, but especially young women. Um, and uh, I, I doubt this is any sort of uh, consolation, but in many ways, a lot of that comes um, because of the um, of the fear that uh, your kind of activism can um, uh, can strike people with, because in standing up um, in the way that you do, you're not only um, just challenging, uh, you know, the way we treat the climate, but the way uh, people treat each other in the particular kind of place that um, oftentimes. Um, uh, African people are assumed to support, people of color are assumed to sort of fit into, women, young people are assumed to fit into. So um, the way in which you um, uh, are standing up, you're, you're not just fighting for the climate, but also fighting and challenging uh, those uh, structures of um, oppression and domi domination, those stereotypes that are designed to keep us in certain boxes and certain places in society. Um, so, uh, um, hang in there as best you can. And if there's any way in which we can continue to show support and solidarity from, um, from abroad, wherever we might be, uh, please let us know. Um, we got a, a bunch of questions that have been coming in and there are several that are, uh, um, particularly for young people, um, who are, uh, trying to figure out how they can find um, a place in this movement that are dealing with some of the same big picture existential questions that you all sort of spoke to. Um, 
and uh, just bringing together a couple of uh, the questions that have been asked um, uh, for both of you all. Um, what are some of the specific skills that young people can try to cultivate to be effective participants and leaders in the movement? Um, what knowledge do you think is critical? Um, and particularly, um, what are the ways in which uh, someone who is um, a little, a young kid or a teenager uh, can do to help their community? Um, uh, what were some of the sort of first things that you um, look to tell young people uh, when they ask what they can do and how they should start to prepare to be um, a meaningful contributor to the movement that you all are helping to build. Uh, Varshan, why don't you go first? Cool. Yeah. So one of the things that I would say right away is start, like begin. Whatever you want to do, whether that's fighting on climate justice, whether that's racial justice, whatever your issue that you care about the most is, find a local organization, um, find maybe a Sunrise chapter, like whatever it is that you want to do, join an email list or whatever you can that is near you and just begin. Um, I like if you had asked if I was going to end up being executive director of, of, of Sunrise Movement when I was um, you know, a decade ago, I would have been like, hell no, that is never going to happen. I don't see that for myself at all. And yet here I am. And in large part, I think that's because um, I jumped in like two feet into movements and put everything that I had into it and um, just begin. And that is one of the most critical things um, that you can do and, and that you have no idea where that journey might take you. Um, the other thing I would say is, is um, investing in um, finding ways that you can participate in movements, um, but not like investing deeply in your own sustainability in that process. I have seen so many young people get in um, and uh, put everything that they have into it, but not also um, deeply invest in their own sustainability while they're doing that work. So whatever work you need to do on the side that builds resilience, that allows you to engage in tough conversations with people, get into conflict, um, you know, navigate the terrain of, of, of organizing work, which can be fraught because so many people are coming from so many different parts of, of the country and, and your community on this is investing in your own resilience and making sure that you have a, a sense of, of, of both stability and the capacity um, to give to the work are, are also something that has absolutely been critical for me. Uh, Vanessa, any thoughts in terms of um, uh, advice that you have for young people who are trying to find ways to uh, to take climate change from um, something that they might just worry about um, and see as this sort of big looming problem um, and instead uh, try to shift to figuring out how they can be uh, part of the solution um, to the problem? How, uh, what do you, well, what do you tell young people who ask you how they can get involved and uh, what are some um, skills or knowledge that they should try to focus on in terms of how to um, uh, best be uh, a useful contributor to the sort of 
work that you all are already doing. Well, um, that young people are asking this question, it shows that you are passionate. It shows that you desire to change this world and make it a better place. So uh, like Bashni say, just just begin, yeah, just begin. But to give you um, an example of how I began, I did so much research because I knew less about the challenge of climate change. So I took time to educate myself by reading articles online to try and understand what climate change really is, what global warming really is, and what leaders are doing about this. So I think it's important to be in the place of learning, learning from those who are who have been there before you, because I remember watching and listening to speeches of young people who had who have been doing uh, climate activism before me. So it, it was also a, a very good moment for me to learn from them, to understand the work that they're doing and to know exactly um, what I'm getting into and why it's important for me to do the activism. And I think that it's also important to remember that whatever action you take is important. Understand that it can make a difference. Many times we feel like our actions cannot make a difference because it's probably just in your community, in your society. But then imagine you are doing that action and another person is doing another action. So if we put together all these actions and you know just add them up, you realize that there are millions of actions that are going to transform this world. So just remember that no one is too small to make a difference, regardless of who you are, regardless of where you come from, regardless of um, what school or what you have studied. So just begin and try as much as possible to learn from those who have been there, who have been doing this. And yeah, just find uh, a local activist group that you can work with. For example, for the Fridays for Future, um, there are different uh, kinds of groups, there are quite a number of groups, sorry, in different countries. So just find uh, any local group, could be Fridays for Future, could be some, the Sunrise Movement could be the Rise Up Movement. Just try and see um, that you be part of this solution. It's time for all of us to be part of the solution and make this world a better place. Word. Appreciate that. Thank you. Oh, man. Um, y'all are... Y'all are uh... I wish it wasn't snowing outside because y'all make me want to go out and like do some door knocking or or something. Um, and that, I, I do want to ask at some point, uh, we did have a question about how you all um, look to take action, especially with the um, current uh, pandemic that we're dealing with. What are some of the ways in which uh, you found ways to kind of pivot and still be effective in terms of the work that you're doing? But I did want to, before we go to that, 
I did want to um, touch on um, a question that uh, we had from Ashwin. Um, uh, he had a two-part question uh, that touches on some other um, uh, uh, kind of lines of questioning that other folks have advanced. Um, for you, Vanessa, um, Ashwin was interested if you had any books, uh, author, or article recommendations <clears throat> about the climate justice movement or climate politics in East Africa or really uh, Africa as a whole, um, and any suggestions in terms of where folks can go to learn more about the work that you, uh, you all are doing in Uganda or any other uh, parts of the continent. Um, and then for Varshney, uh, for us in the U.S., uh, do we, um, we, we need to think about climate, and this is, uh, again, part of Ashton's question, we need to think about climate policy and politics internationally, which means repairing the harms that colonialism and empire have done. Is Sunrise advocating for canceling the debt of countries like Uganda immediately and demanding massive funding from the U.S. to pay for climate mitigation and adaption uh, in countries like Uganda? Uh, if so, how can we boost this? Uh, Bernie called for um, several hundred billion dollars, but even that isn't enough. What's Sunrise concrete vision for international solidarity? And in many ways, um, that sort of touches on other questions that folks have raised um, regarding how do we uh, integrate an analysis of race or uh, um, the legacies of colonialism and the ongoing dynamics of racial capitalism into, uh, into our work uh, particularly when it comes to centering people of color in the, in the global south. But um, uh, if you could just hold uh, for a moment, and maybe Vanessa, if you could give us any suggestions in terms of how to uh, learn more about uh, uh, the climate struggle in East Africa and in Uganda, um, uh, what are your suggestions? Uh, thank you. Um, for the... Uh to learn about the climate activism in my country, in East Africa, and also in East Africa, sorry. Um, there are quite a number of accounts that I would, you know, recommend. There are many young people who are doing a lot to address these issues and demand for justice. Uh, for example, the Rise Up movement, which I started, I work with different young people uh, across Africa to try and, you know, to try and amplify the voices of every activist and to try and bring out their message, to, to try and talk about what countries experience specifically in Africa. Because you may find that what I experienced in Uganda is not what someone in South Africa is experiencing. So that is one of the ways that, you know, you can follow up some of the work that we are doing. There is also Fridays for Future Uganda, uh, on Twitter, there is uh, one million activist stories. Uh, that is one of the initiatives that I started with a fellow activist, Davis Rubin Sekama. And basically, we started this initiative during uh, the pandemic, since we could not do uh, the physical strikes. So we would uh, do like interviews of different activists and share their work on the blog. So you can also find more of that on the One Million Activist Stories. And also on my personal account, I usually um, share what other activists are doing. I think 
that is also another way that you can find out what different activists are doing across the African continent. Yeah, and about the articles, I do not have like specific titles, but then there are quite a number of articles that talk about these challenges. I always focus more on the articles that really explain the impact of the climate crisis in the African continent, because most of the people in Africa, they do not know about this challenge because you find someone saying, why are you fighting for climate justice? And yet many people are probably struggling to get jobs. Many people are struggling to uh, get out of poverty. So it's through these articles that we are able to learn more and, and, and able to teach more young people, more people in communities about what is actually happening on the ground and how the unemployment, the poverty is all connected to the climate disasters. Nice, that's awesome. Um, so on the question, well, just before I get to the question of international solidarity, I something that Vanessa said sparked this for me too around just like specific ways that young people can get involved. And I just wanna give you an example. Like for, we, we did a ton of electoral work in the last cycle and we were able to get folks like Cory Bush and Jamal Bowman elected in large part because teenagers on Zoom were organizing other teenagers to make hundreds of thousands of calls for progressive candidates. And when I say teenagers, I mean like, I was joining phone banks where the trainings were held by two 13 year olds. Like I was attending um, events online that were hosted by like 15 year olds. Um, there is no limit to, to what young people can do. And I think uh, like that is also the thing that helps me cut through a lot of the the despair and the challenge there is realizing like, what am I doing being sad? They're like teenagers who are ready to go right now. And we need to make sure that they feel empowered to do that. Um, and so through Sunrise, we have like a high school and middle school program that we're working with. Um, we're also working to create um, programs specifically for uh, black young people, Latinx young people, and young people who are who, who uh, organize in rural or red communities. Um, and so that's something to also look out for. Um, you know, I, I think part of this, like when I joined, I didn't exactly make the right step or fall into to Sunrise right away, but it was a journey of of just engaging with one thing. Okay, it was like recycling, then it was like sustainable food, then it was divestment, then it was sunrise and just consistently being willing to take risks and do the next thing uh, to keep the movement moving forward. And so that's just a word on, on that last question. Um, I love the international solidarity question and I think it is ex an extremely good one and actually the place where I think the Green New Deal and sunrise have fallen the most short. Um, I think in large part, this was, this is not an excuse, this is just an explanation. I think part of this was one, American politics, both on the left and the right has been so focused on America first, actually before Trump came into office, um, that it has actually infected most of our movements and our organizing as well. And so this has been a big realization for us as we're coming on the like two year mark of, of, of the Green New Deal kind of like um, emerging in a big way in American politics, though many of the ideas of the Green New Deal have been around for forever. 
Um, and I think there's, um, so we're currently in the process of, of basically like creating a new strategy for Sunrise for the next five years and really want internationalism and a sense of international solidarity to be uh, part and parcel of it, especially because, you know, some of the biggest stories last year were about uh, the Amazon or about uh, the, the fires in Australia or so on. Like there is, people are affected. Um, you know, we are in this, this broader web and people are affected by the issues that impact people around the world. Um, even if we are, um, you know, limited by borders and things like that. And so I think um, if you have ideas on this, would love to hear it. You can submit them through the Q&A as we're considering this. I'm also hoping, I'm gonna make a plug to Vanessa to have a call after this um, after this webinar to talk about actually how we can build that up and not, a, not just have it be um, cities and countries in the global north talking to one another, but actually make this a solidarity uh, in the global south with or countries in the global south as well. Um, and so I think we're in a real uh, defining phase around what international solidarity looks like for Sunrise and you know, needing it to be many of these things that you mentioned, Ashwin, um, around like actually like paying up for supporting other countries uh, to transition given the United States' historical culpability with you know, how much carbon is in the atmosphere and pollution. Word and I appreciate um, your humility in terms of saying that you know this is something that um, uh, folks in Sunrise can um, uh, do a better job of, um, and uh, is a is sort of a growth edge both in terms of uh, um, the work that we're doing right now and also uh, how we're framing policies like um, the Green New Deal and you know. Um, in my work with groups that do uh, organizing uh, around questions of militarism and questions of the war, uh, they're constantly reminding me of the fact that um, uh, you know the U.S. military is the largest polluter in the world, and how that um, uh, role that um, uh, the um, the U.S. military and its links to the broader military-industrial complex play in terms of negatively impacting the climate is also deeply connected to questions of uh, war and peace um, uh, at home and abroad. Um, well, I really want to thank you all for uh, taking the time to um, uh, to engage with us here. Uh, through the computer, through um, uh, through our various different online platforms, um, and um, uh, I mean it not just in a sort of perfunctory way, but um, I really think it's deeply important that we have these kind of conversations. And you were saying that uh, it's um, uh, both of you all were speaking to instances where folks have been taking the time to really um, not just uh, sit at home and um, uh, kind of um, observe what's taking place, whether it's on television or through social media or what have you, but actually sort of dig in and get involved. And um, I think uh, these are exactly the sort of conversations we need to be having in terms of uh, finding ways to dig in and, and get involved, um, particularly around the issue of climate justice, because oftentimes um, I think, uh, and this is reflected in some of the questions, um, 
uh, we're um, we're told uh, that this is an issue that um, uh, we can't do that much about at least us as individuals. Um, and there's uh, very little that um, can happen. And I think the work that you all are doing is such an important reminder, such a vital reminder that um, each of us can take action um, on a daily basis uh, to fight for the sort of climate, to fight for the sort of future um, that, uh, that we deserve and the generations coming after us deserve. So I just want to... Um, express my deep gratitude to you all for your inspiring work um, and uh, want to offer our support um, however we can in terms of helping to support, helping to really push forward what you all are doing. And this particular conversation, I think, is very vital. Um, in my own experience, part of my introduction to uh, the work of climate justice um, was through the environmental justice movement and the way in which folks uh, who were fighting against uh, environmental racism were at a point where they were trying to make connections not only to the way in which um, the impacts of uh, Hurricane Katrina connected to uh, the devastation of Cancer Alley in Louisiana, uh, connected to um, the pollution that had been left over from um, industrial production in places all across the United States, uh, but we're also doing that in conversation with folks from South Africa or Nigeria and really trying to make these deep connections between the way in which um, uh, the dynamics of um, the sort of disproportionate burden that our people have to bear uh, because of the way in which the climate is taken advantage of um, is, a, is really a global phenomenon. So um, I'm going to take a moment to close us out. Uh, thank you all. Um, if you all want to just uh, come off mute and uh, just address the audience, um, and if there's any last um, piece of information in terms of what you might want to share in terms of how folks can follow your work, please uh, please take a moment to do so. Uh, maybe Vanessa, if you could go first since you're already off mute, and then uh, Varshney, if you could close us off, close us out. Well, <laughs> thank you so much for having us here and for amplifying the work that we are doing um, through this platform. I really appreciate it. And I think that we shouldn't just end at this conversation, especially for those who have been watching or listening. I think that this is a moment for us to think about what we are going to do to think about how we are going to use our voices, to think about how we are going to use our platforms, to think about how we are going to use our resources for the people on the planet. And all of us are needed if we want to see a future that is sustainable and equitable for all of us. So let's not just end at this lecture, let us actually do something starting now. Yes, I totally agree. And, um, oh, she's still talking. Sorry, it cut out for me. Okay. Um, and yes, exactly. And so, I mean, I would say follow Rise Up Movement, follow Sunrise Movement. You can find us on 
every channel that you would think of um, on, you can go on our website and sign up. Um, I just like super, super encourage you all. There are so many different ways that you can participate in the movement. If you're like protesting, not really for me, that's chill, totally fine. You can knock doors and talk to your um, neighbors about the issue in a way that is COVID safe. Um, you can donate on this issue. You can make calls from your home. You can, um, you know, write op-eds and letters to the editor. You can use whatever. What we need is for every person to utilize their unique set of skills towards the end of achieving a world that is more just and equitable. And like whatever your gift, whatever your talent, whoever you are, whatever you're good at, like think about how you can put that into the effort um, of, of, of stopping the climate crisis. And I just feel really, again, just wanna say thank you, Dr. Lossier. Thank you, Vanessa. Thank you, UMass. Um, I'm just really humbled to be a part of this event and, and so grateful for all your work in your respective areas. Brilliant. Uh, thank you all, and um, much appreciated to uh, the folks who helped make this possible. Um, and uh, thanks to everyone who took the time either to watch this live or uh, hopefully getting a chance to catch this recording. And um, uh, hope to see you in the streets or on social media or knocking on doors with your neighbors or making phone calls or uh, doing whatever um, small piece of um, what is required, you're able to do uh, to help us get us to the uh, vision of the world that we deserve and the future that we want for ourselves and for the generations to come. Thank you.